Hey, Adam. Hey, Dave. Today is an exciting day, isn't it? It sure is. But wait, I forgot. Why is today so exciting? Because we've launched our customer education manifesto. A manifesto? Yes, that's right. You know, just how agile software developers created a manifesto back in 2001 that shaped the future of the industry, we've spent some time and pulled together insights and six key principles into a short statement about what modern customer educators like us believe. Well, it's 2020. It's about time for a manifesto. I love it. Six key principles? Sounds super concise. Where can I find it? Did we nail it to the door of a church? We did not, and those are theses, right? Oh, silly me. (laughs) But seriously, we made it pretty easy for you to find. It's right over our website, customer.education, and if you look at the top nav, you'll find a link for a manifesto. Click that, and you'll be right there. Well, that's great. I can just click that and read the manifesto. Oh, it looks like I can sign it, too. Cool. And that's right. That's really important to us. If you go in and read the manifesto and you feel like it resonates with you, sign the page. We're going to add your name to the list and you can show that you're in this elite group of modern customer educators. Oh, geez, I I better hurry up and sign. Something tells me you're already on the list. It's not like we wrote it. Okay, good morning and hello everybody. Actually, I should say good afternoon, depending on where you're at. Uh, Welcome and thanks for joining our session on the six principles of building a customer education program. We're super excited to talk with you today, particularly those of you who might be coming over from Daniel Quick's uh, customer education playbook session. We feel like this is super complimentary to that. We're gonna have a lot of fun. So let us get started. Um, Adam, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey everyone, my name is Adam Evermescu. I lead enterprise customer learning at Slack. And I also wrote a book called Customer Education, Why Smart Companies Profit by Making Customers Smarter. You can go to bit.ly slash customer education if you want to check that out. And of course, I have a copy of it right here. It's a great book. Uh, And I am Dave Darrington. I lead customer education at Outreach currently. Uh, And today we're going to have a really great presentation for you. So thank you for joining. If you're just coming in, welcome. Okay, so as we have a little time here, we always like to frame this up by going beyond the pictures of who we are and and help you know how we got to where we are today. So let's just take a moment. We're going to share who we are. Adam and I are both customer education professionals, uh, and we've had uh, strikingly parallel journeys. Uh, It's I think, Adam, we were at uh, a conference, I think it was the SEDMA conference several years ago, and you were presenting, and we met right after that, and uh, we immediately connected over this whole field. Um, We immediately realized, hey, how challenging is it for us to find the others, those of us in customer education who are doing what we do every day? Um, And I think we both said to ourselves, where's everybody else? Uh, Perhaps... That's why we, our path of customer education brought us into customer success or from customer success programs in rapidly growing businesses. We had to get education programs stood up really quick, running in no time, quite literally. And since we started this adventure, we've been super lucky. Uh, and we've been able to see, hear, talk with many of you in the field, see what you're doing, how your experiences are similar to ours, how this field of customer education is changing And we think we have a novel perspective. So Adam's going to lead us in with an interesting story to help us frame up what we're talking about today. Yeah. So, you know, Dave just mentioned one of the privileges we've had uh, doing this podcast and being in the industry is we've seen a lot of the changes. uh, We've seen what people are doing and how the market is changing. And that 
got us thinking about the idea of how what worked then might not work now. And to talk about that, first, I want to talk about a book called Me by Me. Now, I only have a clip of the cover here, but if you were around 20 years ago and in the uh, position to purchase books, you may have had a copy of this book. And I'm curious, maybe you can tell from this clip, maybe you can't. Does anyone know what this book is? Yeah, you can chat it out. I'm looking in the chat. Anybody? No, here's what it is. This is the autobiography of the Pets.com sock puppet. So when, why are we talking about the autobiography of the Pets.com sock puppet? Well, because what worked then will not work now. And in fact, when we think about the efforts that Pets.com was making in the late 90s and early 2000s to try to attract an audience and try to change their customers' behavior from going into a pet store to actually shopping online for pet supplies, they had a challenge ahead of them. They had a, a large opportunity in terms of acquiring customers, but it wasn't going to be easy for them. So Dave, if we can go to the next slide, these are some of the efforts that Pets.com made. They created a magazine uh, that had information about uh, Pets.com and, and about pet care. And in the first month that they had that, they distributed a million magazines to their potential customers and to pet owners. They ran a 10-city ad campaign uh, and of course, that infamous $1.2 million Super Bowl ad. So this was a pretty expensive endeavor for them to educate people on how to buy pet food and pet supplies online. And so when we think about how hard it is to acquire customers, it was hard back then and it's still hard now. Um, in the session that you heard earlier from uh, Mark, he was talking about this, the the CAC LTV ratio, the cost to acquire a customer is really significant and continues to be. So what happened then versus what happens now? Well, in the past, you could make ads, you could run your uh, $1.2 million Super Bowl ad, and you still can, but now you have more to think about. Now you have to really think about search engine optimization. You could print brochures and manuals, you could go to the trade show, you could reach out to prospective uh, customers there. You still can. But now customers are finding you in all sorts of places. You have to think about your landing pages, online help centers, customers finding you in very meaningfully different ways. Um, and then you get a little bit past that and you think about how do we actually educate our customers on how to get to meaningful usage of our product. And this continues to be a challenge because in the past you could pull everyone into these expensive classroom training centers. Uh, you could run live trainings for everything. You could run even two-week onboardings where you pulled uh, all of your power users into a room together and devoted time off their jobs to train them up. Well, if that wasn't, uh, if that was still happening up until March or so of this year, it's not happening anymore. So the way that we think about customer education has been changing and that has just accelerated in the past few months. So that was acquiring customers, but I would argue, and again, you might have heard this in Mark's presentation earlier today, retaining customers is even harder. It used to be that you could go and sign a multi-year contract, and if the customers didn't really find meaningful usage of that product, you had what was essentially shelfware, right? The product sat on the shelf and didn't get used, but you had still been paid the money for it, so everything was kind of okay and you could go chase that that renewal um, when it got closer to the time. 
And that's not really the position that most businesses are in anymore. We've moved into a subscription economy. We've moved into a SaaS environment. And that means that renewals are constant. So if you think about the, the flow that a customer goes through now, they move from onboarding to adoption to uh, hopefully getting that renewal and uh, eventually uh, getting to that stage where the lifetime value of keeping that customer exceeds the cost that it uh, cost to acquire them. And Dave, you showed on the, the next slide that, again, the risks here are meaningful and they're pervasive. So if you onboard that customer, but you don't get them to a stage where they've reached that first value, uh, they're probably going to churn because they haven't found a meaningful way to use your product. Maybe they've started to adopt it, but they haven't really matured or realized on any ongoing value. Well, you're probably not going to see that renewal. They're probably not going to expand. And if those things don't happen, again, you're signing up for slow and painful churn. So there isn't shelfware in today's uh, economy. There is churn, and churn is pervasive. So Dave, we have a, we have a quote that we, we think about here in terms of customer success. Do you want to take us into that? Yeah, and I want to frame this up a little bit by saying, again, customer success is really important to us because we feel customer education is emergent from that. We are the scale engine of customer success. We're there to support it. So Lincoln Murphy, uh, who you may have known um, currently of 16 Ventures, uh, he had been working with uh, Gainsight on the, uh, the customer success book. Uh, he, he came up with a, a, a really good quote here. Now, he's a growth consultant. He's focused on this kind of stuff. And what he has to say is that we have to educate people on not just how to use the product, our product, but quite frankly, that they need the product, right? And what they'd even do without it. So this is really important. This is, this is a gentleman that's, that's way out there and evangelizing for customer success. He's saying customer education is vital. It's the lifeblood of organizations. And that's why we have we think it's so important to elevate customer education. And you may may have heard some of the sessions earlier today. We're talking about customer education is pervasive. It's throughout our entire life cycle, all the way into sales, even. So it's super important. I like that quote. So let's let's do some thinking. And it may not be hard to sell all of you in this audience, but uh, this is a these are the conversations that you want to have with your leadership if you're struggling to get the attention or you're trying to get buy-in. Ask this question of yourself. How many thousands or, or maybe millions of dollars has your company spent to acquire customers and drive adoption? This is what Adam was just showing on this last slide as you're going up through that, that line. Um, it, it's, it's substantial in most cases. Even more, let's go deeper. Uh, how much of that has been spent on customer marketing? Okay, that's to build the funnel. Uh, how many drip campaigns do you have going on at any given time? Uh, let's, let's talk about post-sales yet. How many CSMs does your customer have? And more importantly, how many ad hoc trainings are they doing each and every day, many times a day sometimes? So most of you in the audience already know this. Education is pivotal. We're all educators. Adam, I think you have said that in one of your books or um, in, in frequently. Said that to anyone who will listen to me. Absolutely. We're all educators. We're, we're all doing it. And it actually feels good. But this brings us to one very simple and exceptionally uncomfortable reality. Your customers don't succeed if they don't learn. Okay? Again, say it for effect. Read it with me. Your customers don't succeed if they don't learn. That makes us a success function. So, Adam, we've talked about the internal realities of customer education. 
What's that look like from the other side, the customer side? Yeah, that's right. We've been talking about what this looks like from the customer or the company side, the outcomes we're trying to drive, but it's just as important to think about it from a customer point of view. So think about the first time you used uh, a piece of software, maybe one that you use successfully today. We would argue that learning a new product, if we want to draw an analogy, is like going on a journey without a map. So Dave, if we want to maybe look through the next few slides here, when we think about learning a new product and trying to get value from it, you often have some vague idea of what it is that you want to be doing in there. Um, it might not be clearly defined. It might just be something that looks interesting and you have a vague sense that it produces value, but you jump in, you don't really know how all the features correspond to each other. They don't know how they can help you. Daniel was talking about this in his previous uh, presentation on the 12 steps uh, for the playbook, right? Customers don't always know what they're getting into when they, they start using a product or how it's right. going to provide them value. So journeys also look different for everyone. And again, Daniel was talking about this in the previous session when he talked about different personas. Some journeys, for instance, are long, but they're straightforward and you know where they're going, right? The, you're, you're on the highway the whole time. Other ones don't look like that. They might be really short journeys, but they're still utterly baffling just because of the number of twists and turns. Uh, how often have you turned on the GPS just to get somewhere around your own town uh, because uh, it wasn't straightforward to you? Sometimes the journey takes a twist or a turn or a winding path. Uh, value might not be uh, you know, completely straightforward to find. Some might uh, start on the highway and then go into the back roads. Things get confusing or value becomes unclear over time. Uh, some go completely off-road <laughs> and require new paths to be forged. This might be like off-label use cases uh, or new use cases that you or your company didn't even know about before the customer started using them. And let's also be cognizant that many journeys are, are taken on foot. We've been assuming the whole time that you had a car. Uh, what if you don't? What if you are just wandering in the woods? So. How can we help you? Well, oftentimes a product designer will say, our product should be so intuitive that uh, you shouldn't need customer education. And if customer education needs to happen, it's just a Band-Aid. I don't think that's entirely true. If we use this road trip analogy, good product design is sort of like having road signs. Uh, it makes the journey easier to follow. There are so many design cues on the average highway, the average road that ultimately makes um, the, the journey easier, but that's not the only thing you need to get where you're going. Similarly, uh, you might say, let's hire a bunch of CSMs and support agents. And I think hiring CSMs and support agents is super important. That human touch is really important. But even if you have great people, I, I think it's sort of like having like a really knowledgeable person at the gas station. You, you pull over to the side of the road, you ask them for directions, uh, they can tell you where to go. But if you kind of break that analogy for a moment, well, they need to know that the customer actually needs help. What if the customer doesn't pull into that gas station to ask for directions? And furthermore, they can only help so many people at a time. Each CSM mm -hmm. has a portfolio of customers. Uh, and if they're trying to help all the people who didn't necessarily think to reach out to them, that's sort of like uh, the gas station attendant walking outside when there's already a, a line of uh, 10 people waiting for directions. <laughs> so Dave, what are, what are we in this equation? Well, we're not, if anybody can catch what's wrong with this picture, I really like this picture, Adam. Um, you, you, can, you can see that it's backwards. Um, but 
I would have to say that until recently, customer education has had somewhat of an identity crisis. So at least to me, Adam, I think you might say so as well. There are, there are lots of voices out in the marketplace saying, you know, what we do, who we are, how we work. And let's answer this question then. And, and Adam and I are here to like posit some you know, challenging assertions. And that's what we mean by the six principles. Who are we exactly? Using, I love this road trip analogy. Um, who are we? Are we the map makers? Uh, well, I would say maybe, we would say maybe we're the GPS. We're, we're the ones that are the Waze or the Google Maps or Apple Maps. Um, our ultimate role, our ultimate mission, and, and nay, our passion is to help the customer along the journey to get to where they want to go. What do you want to do? Think about yourself. And, and I've had this experience recently where I, I've been asked to use another product at work for something. And I go, oh, well, I didn't choose this. This is not my idea. And, and now I have to do this thing. What do I want to do? Where do I want to go with this? Do I want a four-lane superhighway to get me from point A to point B fast? Do I want to go off-roading? It's kind of fun. We need to know that as customer education people to chart the course. So we're a new face of customer education. We've spent a lot of time thinking about our role uh, and sweated it. We've, we've lived in the trench. This is what we believe our job is. And, and I take this, I think, from your book, Adam. Uh, a customer education function strategically accelerates account and user growth by changing behaviors, reducing barriers to value, and improving the way people work. Right? Let's think and, about and Dave, some. Yeah, if we, if we can break just a piece of that down for a moment. Indeed. As customer educators today, we are in a position where we are not just reaching out directly to consumers. And we are not just directly reaching out to the business stakeholder at the account or the person that we we sold uh, the product to. As customer educator, excuse me, as customer education professionals, we're often dealing with both audiences at once. So we have to think about a, a two-layer strategy, one that really helps the account grow over time and reach mm -hmm. maturity, so that we can achieve LTV, but one that also addresses each and every user within that account to help them find success trying to do the things that they're able to do. Absolutely. Growth, value. We're reframing our educational mis mission in the context, of, the context of the customer's success, right? And Adam, I, we talk about this all the time. It kind of puts us in a different spectrum or a different light than it would be if you were a standard educational services function, right? We have different things to, to think about. So, so let's get to the manifesto. Um, before we do, let's do a little a brief history lesson. Uh, those of you who know, who've been in the uh, software industry for a while, like I know I have, there was this thing about a decade or two, two decades ago now, goodness, uh, the Agile Manifesto came out. Similar in spirits, and it actually was um, the, the genesis, the origin of, of this whole thing. We, we could, and we have, and we, we do work in long-form programs. Like you, you think about Addy or, or more of a, a, pr a project manager. project manager would say waterfall. Um, could take a really long time to build stuff. We don't have that luxury of time. How do we serve our customers better? So in software as a service, X as a service, we have customers that are in pain right now. They're frustrated. They're confused. You know what? They need us. They're not going to wait. And they may churn. If, if they don't churn, it effectively becomes self shelfware and somebody is paying for that bill, for that seat. That brings us to our manifesto. 
So let's quickly read through this. Um, and before, as we go through this, we're going to break all this down one by one. I'm going to start reading, and I think for effect, um, we're going to take turns on this and go slow. We want you to think about this as well as we go through this. So I'll start off. We believe that modern customer educators must, number one, guide customers to value versus educating a customer on every single feature. We believe in building a core program that scales versus customizing every time. We lead with data tied to business outcomes versus measuring just our activity. We use agile practices to ship solutions quickly versus perfecting our content. We design experiences that we ourselves would actually want to learn from versus building safe and dry learning. And finally, we serve busy customers in their moment of need versus making them do the work. And so you can see here that these are all statements about what we prefer over their alternatives. And their alternatives can be equally tempting or there, there can be business pressures to do the alternatives all the time. And if you're coming into customer education for the first time, or if you are an education services department that is rapidly changing because of uh, external pressures in the world, I'm sure that these are all tough decisions to make. They certainly have been for me in the past. So we intend for this to be a way to help guide those decisions and provide a guiding light for those who are in the field. Absolutely. So again, we've, we've highlighted this. You can go to our website as well. We'll mention the URL to that. Um, but we're really laser focused on some key principles that are going to help accelerate what we do. You know, like you can read on, on the, the left side of this, you know, we know customers don't succeed if they don't learn. We want to get to value. We want more value over time. We want to remove roadblocks and we want to help scale. That's the genesis of this whole thing. So now what we're going to do is walk through each one of these principles, these values in our manifesto. And we're going to give you some examples on how we think this has been really done. You know, these have been typified or, uh, or emblematic of what we're trying to do. So let's go through this and let's start with number one. Again, that's that we prioritize guiding customers to our product's value, right? Value first over educating them on all the features. Now, this is where uh, and, and I like to pause here a little bit and just and, and kind of go back to to the day. Um, we're here to close gaps uh, between things like uh, buying a product versus well, I'm actually getting something out of that product. It's not shelfware. Or, you know, I might and I do this all the time. I don't know about you. Stumble around in a product without looking at anything. It's kind of fun at first, frankly, if the product is enjoyable versus actually being a power user and knowing what you're doing and cutting down that time to actually achieve a goal, right? Um, we're, we're looking at difference between casual organic usage, oh, I'll poke around at this, versus strategic usage to affect a real dif difference. And then finally, you know, using a product because it just looks cool or interesting, and then using it because that thing is going to advance your career. You know, we're not here to make training something like, okay, and you've all done this. I'm sure I've done this. It's easy. And we've been educated to do this in the past, you know, all the way through school. Now click that blue button in the top right corner that says something. Okay, we, we're, we're not here to do that. We're here to, to think bigger. Um, I'm just giving you kind of an, an example from outreach. Uh, 
as a customer, now we're an engagement platform for sales. Uh, As a customer, I want to know not just how to look at a list of like my manager sends me a list of prospects to look at and I want to actually call these people or email these people, right? Uh, I could just start at the top, work all the way down through it. But that's mindless. That's not intelligence. That's not value. And in our education program, what we're trying to do is develop a workflow. How do the skills, how do the features fit together to help you do something like, okay, I get a list of prospects. How do I prioritize them by actual interest? Have they looked at my emails? Have they read them? Um, have they gone to our website? Do I know? If I know, I'm going to prioritize those people. Similarly, geography. Do you want? If you're a sales rep, are you going to call somebody at five in the morning? Well, you could if you just followed a script or a list. Have you gotten those calls? Yeah, we don't want that. Similarly, if you have somebody on the phone, what's the best practice? What do they allow? What What do they care about? Those are the kind of things that are interesting. So, if in five minutes I can have somebody look through a list, know how to approach it, that's going to translate to a paycheck. So let me go a little bit further. Now I'll talk about uh, an example that we all know and love if we're Salesforce users. Um, Salesforce Trailhead. This is an amazing educational platform. Uh, It goes well beyond just product training. It's a learning platform now. So, you know, at first this may have been fun. It may have been just easy to use. Like, oh, cool, I can go to Trailhead instead of taking all these classes by some third party. It evolved to offer from just talking about like admin training or sales training, uh, something that's way beyond that. And now getting additional value into soft skills and things that help a salesperson or marketer or customer support person, depending on how you're using Salesforce, to fill in those gaps, that, that additional value. So somebody's now staying here on the Trailhead site going, oh, cool, well, I can learn this and I can do that. And, and, it, and it's extremely helpful. So Salesforce has introduced all these additional skills and now we're addressing the whole of the person and keeping them in place. So really cool stuff here. You know, there's the Trailhead Trailblazer branding has expanded into conferences, into communities, and so much more. Uh, number two is that we prioritize building programs that are going to scale over over ones that re- really require deep customization. Okay, um, again, operant word here is scaling. Uh, now, let's go into this. So, what we're trying to do, like, well, you read this slide, you realize one key thing: if you're working in software as a service, SaaS moves very fast. Um, Faster than my internet connection. That's right. <laughs> that's a great seg back. Um, I'll, I'll finish this off, Adam, and I'll d- dump it over to you. Uh, <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> education is, is commonly done. Let's, let's be real. If you're like me, I've been in three different companies doing this kind of thing. Every time it's the same way. A CSM starts teaching right? Because you're early phase, you don't have an education team, uh, or other team members, your onboarding team are doing this. Without a program, though, to perform this function, a lot of SaaS businesses have start to hit problems. Maybe, Adam, what do you think? About 50, 100, 150 people in, you're hitting problems with scale. And, and what we really want to do is focus on what matters most, building a foundation that you can use however you need to. Okay, Adam, are we ready? Do you want to queue you up again? Or are we still frozen? I'm back. Let's see okay. if my internet holds. Just get started on, on uh, this. Example. I have just queued you up for this. We're going to talk about um, uh, Asana. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, let's hope my internet holds for long enough to talk about this. If not, I know Dave can pick all of this up, too. Um, so let's talk about Asana for a moment. Daniel did talk about a few examples in the previous session, but 
Asana took a very modular approach to creating content. And this started with what Daniel mentioned, developing a 60-day curriculum for uh, new users who were coming on so that they could be really consistent about the way that they delivered the same learning objectives across different platforms. So to me, this really represents the idea of starting with scale. They centralized a lot of these programs in what's called the Asana Guide, and that's what you see here. This is a centralized property that includes their training webinars, articles, videos, courses, that are all optimized for different audiences at different stages in the uh, sales or post-sales lifecycle. So for example, the guide itself uh, was for some of these kind of big picture use cases that are pre-sales, uh, marketing, and then as the customer goes along their, their journey, they could pick up uh, you know, docs when they needed support, webinars when they were new users, and Academy when they were kind of converting from that free trial into paid users and really getting to that meaningful value stage. And each of them used the same how to Asana videos that Daniel was talking about uh, in his previous session as well. So it was really nice to see the same resources used across different properties in a way that would really scale and create operational efficiencies for the Asana team while still providing a really good contextual experience for the customer. All right. So let's move on to number three. Three is really about how we measure our data and what data we're measuring. So again, there's a distinction here between measuring our operational data. Uh, everyone at some point measures the number of registrations in a course uh, or ultimately the reach of the program or who has completed what course. Those are all important to collect, but this is about tying to broader business outcomes and really getting our business impact data. So how do we focus those measurement efforts? Well, ultimately, we want to prioritize tying to the things that our business really cares about to show whether we're making an impact. When our programs are doing well, they do more to drive customer adoption, right? One of the first things that my manager had said to me is that I want our, user, our customers to be adopting, to use the product more. Um, Perhaps equal, sometimes more importantly than that, we, we're concerned about reducing that customer churn, right? And that comes from a place of um, frustration. And how often has it been that you've used a product and I just, I just can't do this one thing. This one thing isn't working. And you come back and you hit your head on it again and again and again, and it just doesn't work. Um, but then if you find an appropriate piece of training, sometimes get around that. Now, what, what's super important there is that we want to be proactive about that and avoid that frustration from the get-go. Uh, uh, another big thing is uh, aiding retention and expansion, right? We, we want to keep the customer. Now, uh, of course, getting customers to use and adopt more, reducing churn, um, that's first table stakes. That's a phrase I hear. Um, we want to start getting people to stay with us longer. This is an invaluable product. I want another, like the, one of the coolest things I've seen happen at Outreach is we do a good job, a great job as a team landing and getting a product in place for a small team usually. And that team of, of sales professionals are like, I can't imagine my life without this. And that is infectious. And that leads to a land and expand type approach where other, other customers in that same org get excited and they're having social learning and thing going on. This is really cool. Uh, and then we're talking about scaling and reducing human effort. It, do you want your customer success managers to constantly have to battle one-on-one uh, -on -one training, 
right? Do you want your onboarding people doing one-on-one training? It does not scale. If a, a cool thing that I've seen recently and I've done in the past too is that we have um, um, we have onboarding on-demand material that you can go back and forth with. So if you're in onboarding, you say, hey, go look at this module and do this homework and come back to me. And then we're going to talk about it and see what you did. And if you don't do that, we're going to stop until you do. This really produces that operational efficiency and also puts that, that um, responsibility on the customer side because they have to drive their experience and pull each other through. So, Adam, if you're back, I'm up to the point where I, we're talking yeah. about staff and costs. Yeah. Can you, can you hear me now, Dave? Absolutely. Welcome back. Okay, so I've decided to combat this uh, severe internet and very inconveniently timed internet issue by uh, calling in from my phone. So if you can't see my face, um, at least I can still hear Dave and hopefully you can still hear me. <laughs> All right. Um, so Adam, if you're if you're looking at the deck, we're, we're talking about, okay, we're, our programs are working well, they do more to do all these things. And, and we're, we're trying to, we're making a point that if you have a customer education program, it, it can save you money as well. Sometimes big time. Yeah, absolutely. When we're when we're thinking about the idea here of ROI, ultimately we want to know, you know, did did the impact that we had on the business outweigh what it costs to staff the program? And certainly, if you're just starting a customer education program, you are probably going to be operating uh, as a cost center to start with. Probably mm-hmm. not always. Um, but over time, you'll be able to show the value and impact that you have. It's important to be thinking about it in those terms to start with. So we'll we'll give an example of someone who is really looking at these these pieces. Uh, we want to talk about Heap Analytics. So specifically, their education property, Heap University. This is a company that I think does something really interesting with data because they are themselves a data and analytics company. So Heap University ultimately helps onboard uh, and serve Heap's customers as they learn how to use an analytics platform, as well as how they interpret the results that they see from their in-product analytics. So the company is in a unique position to be able to use its own always-on analytics product to tie their training consumption data to key product adoption metrics. So for example, if someone takes a certain course in Heap University, what effect does that have on key metrics that Heap cares about in their own product? So what I like about this, and you can see this in some of the the titles of the reports, they're answering actual key questions that they or their executives might have about what their education program is doing. And they're monitoring correlations, which helps show that ROI story. And again, it's easy to get fixated sometimes on the idea of causation versus correlation. Should we be measuring any of these things if we can't prove that customer education actually caused these outcomes? And Dave and I would argue, No. While ultimately you want to make sure that you eventually are at the point where you can really be telling a a story around education being a causal effect on customer outcomes, especially when you're just getting started out, I think looking at correlation and being able to tell the story around that and how that's a strong correlation is not just enough, but it's still a very impactful story to be telling. Because when you're thinking about the impact that customer education has, even if you assume for a moment that the causation is reverse causation, for example, let's say that the customers who are more likely to renew or the customers who are more likely to adopt your product uh, were then the customers who took education, that's still a pretty impactful story because that means that your customers who ultimately were successful with your product needed education 
as a part of their journey. So you're still supporting your successful customers. And in a way, that's a, a call to action to help distribute that same education to more customers so that they can be successful. Absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's move forward. Um, now we're going to talk about Agile. I love this one. I'm a big fan of Agile, as you couldn't tell. Um, what we want to do, what we believe fundamentally, is that we need to prioritize shipping solutions quickly using small a Agile type, type method. This is a big difference when you hear developers talk about that. So that's why I say small a over perfecting our content. Uh, so l l let's tear into this a little bit more. And I'm going to make um, make a transparent note that I'm a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> Maybe you are too. I think that's inherent I in, I, I know I know you are. We're perfectionists and we're recovering from that. Uh, because of the way we've been educated, we like to strive for perfection. That's a whole, whole, whole academic system is geared towards that. And you, know, you start at 100 points or 1,000 points for a course and you just go down. In SAS, we can't wait, right? If, if an instructional designer tells me, hey, it's going to take me three months to go and do this thing, and I'm going to have to learn this and do all these things and build the program and test it. Okay, three months. Can you do it in one? Can you do it in three weeks? I have a problem with really, really long timelines, personally, because I have been on that other side. I'm supporting customers. There's a lot of pain out there. Customers don't have time to wait. They're going to churn. So the time pre pressure is huge. So what we do, therefore, is focus on that small A Agile. Doesn't mean we have to do rigorous Scrum or whatever, all these methodologies that you hear about in Agile. That's scary, right? There's a lot to that. You don't need to hire a Scrum master. In, I'm sure many of you who have come in from an instructional design or at least an accidental one have heard about SAM, you know, rapid iterations to, to programs. So let's give you an example. Um, before I do that, I, 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 let's talk about the keys, though, before I dump into that. Uh, I, I like Adam's comment here. You know, we keep quality in mind while designing our experience, but we also reject the dragon of perfectionism. Sounds so bold. I love it. Um, it it's it's looking over your shoulder all the time. It's like, oh, you can do that better. And actually, other people are in the process saying, oh, that has to be perfect, or the that needs to be centered a little bit. You know what? Don't care. Here's what we do philosophically. Break work up. Small units, chunking, right? Deliver that content more frequently. I like to think of a flywheel, right? Get something, get it out there, iterate it again, do it later. Um, work in beta. If you slap beta in anything, if Google hasn't has has done one thing for us it's totally you slap beta on top of some product that you got out there and you keep it in beta forever nobody cares that that's just a signifier that you're working on it and that's okay it's okay to a customer that we're in beta or prototype status and in fact they're probably going to be thankful for it i've always seen that and you also in agile just have to be comfortable with imperfection. It's okay. That's that you had a typo or something like that. You know, it pains me all the time. It's just okay. Let's talk of, uh, again, an example. I've talked a little bit about outreach, but because I work there, I'm excited about it. I want to show you what we're doing and how we're applying these skills in our environment. So at outreach is a little bit different. When when I say agile, even small a agile, it's evocative of this. Oh my gosh, you know we got to be on this timeline and we've got to use Jira and do all. It. No, we don't have to do any of that. We don't have to do any of that stuff. Um, we thought about 
a, a lot of this. Outreach uses a modified, a very heavily modified practice that it's, it's more, I came into an organization where we had existing content and the content actually looked pretty good. Was it performant? Nope. There were no quizzes. Uh, there was real no learning objectives. So the instructional design component of the content itself wasn't up to mark, but the quality was. That meant we had to have that quality barrier there. Now, if you think about the iron triangle, I look at the iron triangle of content design. You know, you have time and quality uh, and, you know, uh, the pro cost. Um, I wasn't so worried about cost, but I was worried. I wasn't I was worried about quality. So we focused on quality, standardizing, and coming up with a process that we quickly loop and iterate. So if something did get wrong and go out the door, I could quite quickly go in and pull, you know, pull out the slide, make some changes, put it back up, and we're good to go. Um, so in, in course of this also, we did have a little longer loops. We had a heavier rev review cycle or cadence. Um, and, and you may have, uh, this is worth, uh, we're talking about as well, because in some environments you have a lot of tribal knowledge, you have a lot of stuff that's up here in people's heads and to get that out sometimes takes a lot. So you can flex your agile approach on a continuum. It's not just one thing. You can be very waterfall-esque and still drop into the agile, uh, point of view. Um, we also are pivoting from live to on-demand content. So we're expanding our portfolio and that's cool in the live version, not just on the on-demand version, you can be agile about that too. So we've been quick to come up with beta classes and get people into them and test them and evolve them. And actually, you know what? It's a lot of fun. It makes it more like your customer is a partner alongside you in your journey, but also you're always raising the bar of your content and it's becoming improved. For us in about 18 months, we were able to pivot away from a, kind of like an old structured program. And now we have a process that's much more flywheel, much more agile. We can turn on a dime and add new content. So yeah. there's, you know, there's Dave, a content. We have a similar story at, uh, at Slack when we released the Slack certified program, mm -hmm. which was uh, something that we we did our first full online release just uh, just about a month ago, actually. So in that program, this was actually something where we originally were tasked with building uh, a certification program on an incredibly short timeline, and we had to make trade offs and think about how mm -hmm. are we ultimately going to bring this into the world. And so we actually started with uh, a live course that certainly was not. Uh, easy to produce, but we were able to iterate that uh, into a roadshow where we delivered the live course to iterate on it and refine it, but always with the intention of bringing it into this fully online, proctored, rigorous format. Um, and part of the reason why we wanted to do that was also to reflect Slack's brand standards. It's really important um, you know, that, that your education, even if you use an agile approach, that you're doing it relative to your company's own brand standards and expectations and the voice that you want to use to communicate with the rest of your uh, customer base. But we also uh, did it in a way to tie back to principle number one, which was there was a lot of information that we wanted to teach and convey and certify that wasn't just about how to use the product itself. It was how to be successful as a Slack administrator or a Slack developer. We would always describe it as part art, part science. And so uh, as we proceeded through the various uh, phases, we were able to refine that more and more from kind of the learning objectives and job task analysis to painting a deeper and fuller picture of what those skills actually were and how we would teach them and how we would test on them. So taking the agile approach actually really helped us build a final 
end product that I think was was ultimately better. Absolutely. Okay, let's continue on. We've got two more to go. Adam, you got the floor. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a couple minutes here and also want to make sure that we can answer folks' questions. So number five is really about learning that we ourselves would want to learn from. I think a lot of customer education programs fall into the trap of designing customer education that ultimately is not a great experience. Um, so instead of actually designing something engaging, they stick to something that's safe and dry and tried and true. But I think that instructional design is not just learning experience design, but really in some ways, we're all in the business now of UI and UX. We're really thinking about what our customer experience is as they take our learning. And for those of us in customer education, I think that impact is magnified because we don't have a captive audience. Our customers don't have to take our education in a lot of ways. Uh, and in fact, in many cases, they might be finding us organically and whether they complete a course or whether they actually go through what they need to go through to be successful is really dependent on our ability to engage them and to keep them engaged. So what can we do if we can't just keep them in multi-day classroom lectures? How do we actually engage them? Well, one is we have to think like UI UX professionals. Let's build clean interfaces with easy navigation that makes it really easy to get to the next step. Let's uh, think about storytelling. How do we tell compelling stories to our customers? And this fits in again with principle number one. How do we give them a real picture about what the job is and what it means to be successful on there? Let's include some, uh, not necessarily overboard, but some fun and games uh, to make it a delightful experience. Maybe even a touch of emotion. Let's, let's empathize with them. And overall, this also takes us towards what might be considered micro-learning, the idea of building shorter, punchier, and more digestible content that can be repurposed. You're much more likely to engage with something that is uh, of a manageable length uh, than something that is you know, multiple hours at a time. Absolutely. So Dave, you actually found a really good example uh, of a program like this in the wild. Would you like to talk about it? I would. And in fact, if anybody in our audience is from Trulia, I'd love to talk to you. Um, so stumbled upon this quite recently. Uh, I, I have a shared uh, love for game design. I, I share this with uh, our friend Daniel. Um, I actually taught it, taught it for about eight years at a university. One day I was looking through my Facebook feed of all things and I saw um, an ad for Twilio Quest in Facebook. And I, okay, I'm, I'm really intrigued. What's going on here? This is a product that I know uh, I've, I've interfaced with before. What do you got going on here? So what I saw, and you, you can research this on your own, it's Twilio Quest, and you go to the Twilio site or just Google that. Uh, they built a role-playing game experience to teach developer skills that include a lot of really high interactivity. And what's more important, and this is, this is like for me a holy grail, um, and to give you a, just a quick side story, at Gainsight, one of the things when I was, this is a couple of jobs ago, when I was the, the lead of the Gainsight Customer Education Program, we built a training environment, a test environment that had all the stuff in it that you can do. And we built exercises to that. And that sandbox, that lab-based environment is super crucial and helpful when you can get it. Right, particularly when you're leaning more on the side of people who are developers, because they would actually not rather watch a video of you doing some stuff. They'd rather look at some documentation than have a challenge. They want to do, right? Not necessarily watch. Um, 
So through game-based missions, you can create project work in a local environment. And it's just super hands-on and super fun. And, you know, if you want to develop something, you're also playing a game. How cool is that? I mean, this is how my kids love to learn. You know, you've got... Um, what is it? All these different, you know, Game Maker and Stitch and like the little little apps that are coming out all the time to teach kids how to code. Well, we we put your money where your mouth is, and we did it for our customers. So, Twilio, kudos to this really great idea. Love the idea. All right, let's go to our last one here. Here it is. Okay, so the way I always think about this one is customers are busy, not lazy. So let's treat them as if they're busy. And you know, we, the, every moment of attention that we get from them is one that we have earned. So let's dive a little bit into the, the principles here. So when we think about our customers being busy, not lazy, uh, again, and I, uh, Daniel said this in the last session as well, if you build it, they won't come. So we are just as responsible for not just marketing our programs, but making sure that we have an outreach and distribution strategy for our educational moments. And that's probably going to go outside of just the traditional LMS or outside of um, you know, the, the traditional course structure. So how do we meet our customers where they are? It's sort of about thinking about a push and pull strategy. So let's pull our customers in by making sure that they have sharp in-product tutorials, uh, tool tips that they can pull to be able to uh, get help in a moment of need. Same applies when they're having trouble. I think error states and uh, common problems that the customer might be having are great opportunities to link out to resources that will help them solve their own problem and might even be a funnel into deeper educational moments as time goes on. It also means meeting them where they are. So for example, uh, in Google searches and YouTube videos, uh, perhaps pushing to them in their own Slack workspace. That's something that we experiment with uh, mm -hmm. quite a bit at Slack. And uh, in their email through campaigns and promotions. So having nurture campaigns and, and targeted promotions going out to customers, that's a good way to draw them in as well. We can't just expect them to uh, find our educational materials by themselves, but once they do find them, let's make it dead simple to get to the next step. So for an example of this, uh, we like to look at intercom. So similar to how you would expect uh, in the Heap example, Heap as an analytics platform should be really good at their own uh, in-product analytics. Intercom as a conversational messaging and conversational support uh, tool should be really good at meeting customers where they are. And in fact, they are. They believe in a strategy of right help, right place, right time. And as you can see in the screenshot here, uh, you when you first come into Intercom, they actually ask you some questions, including what do you do? What are you trying to use the product for? So they can guide your experience of using the product. And they also frequently link out to relevant materials in their Intercom Academy and their Help Center. So you can see below in the, uh, the example here, uh, you can engage your customers to complete a goal with a series of linked messages. That's a feature called Series. So you could take a tour of that feature. You could see it in action in a video. You could go to an article about how it works, or you could go to their academy to actually learn that feature top to tail. So it's different levels of investment for different levels of motivation. We always have to think about that high intent versus low intent user. Uh, they also use a best next step approach. So when they are sending out nurture emails and drip campaigns, they are looking at the customer's actions and timing, whether they did or didn't perform a certain action in the product to guide the messaging. So for example, on day one, if they install the intercom messenger, 
On day two, Intercom is looking to see if they did or didn't actually take the next step. Uh, it keeps them close to the product. So, you know, they kind of still remember why they came. If on day two, they have uh, taken the next step, then they'll get another email nurture with uh, more suggested next steps. But if they went a few days without taking that next step, maybe they want to take a step back and assume that they need to remind them of the value of the product or of the feature. So they might zoom out a level and send you a message that's more like uh, customer stories or value-led. For example, join 30,000 businesses in the conversational support space. They also did a lot of uh, testing to figure out what the right level of uh, nurture in product was. So they used to have 200 plus messages uh, delivered by different product managers for different features. And they tested that against a new streamlined, uh, very actionable uh, approach where they were really just trying to drive the key steps for activation that they knew would make the customer successful. And as you can imagine, by testing that simplified approach, less is more, really empathizing with the customer by meeting them where they are, they saw a meaningful increase in activations as a result. So I think, Dave, that takes us through our six principles. Is that right? That, uh, that does it. So, and this is where we've got some homework for you. Not, not really. That's a call to action instead. Before you sign off, before you head to your next session, if any of this resonated with you, here's your call to action. Number one, we'd really like you to go to our website. It's customer.education. Super cool website. I don't know how we got it. Go there, read the manifesto. And if you agree with it, feel like it, it's worthy, sign it, right? Next steps on from that, you know, we're, we're going to take it to the next level and evolve this. Then we want you to subscribe to our podcast if, if you're open to it. We, we've been doing this for a couple of years now, right, Adam? Um, we have, yeah. Almost we've got, years, exactly. We're closing in on episode 50. There's a lot of great content, and we are open, transparent, and we're, we're getting into the weeds here every day. We, we want to be those people that you can talk to, and we want to hear your voice and include it. And then give us feedback. Want to be on a podcast, or you want to learn something, or you want us to cover something? Give us uh, get on our site. Let us know. We we really want to learn from you. Again, it's customer education. I think we do have time for one question, and I see one question. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, let's see I where see I add here. I can I can read it. Go ahead and read Tiffany it because I think it's good. Yeah, Tiffany asks, "Do you find that avoiding perfectionism? So this was in the the agile principle. Do you find that, that can reflect poorly on your brand? For example, if a tust- if a customer sees typos." grammatical errors or errors in layout and design, they may potentially lose trust in your company's attention to detail and care. That's a really good question. <laughs> and I think this is about finding a balance. Um, Dave, jump in too, please. Yep. When we talk about rejecting the, the dragon of perfectionism, I think of a Brene Brown quote here, actually. She talks about perfectionism as not necessarily reflecting a high standard of quality. Perfection is kind of about, or perfectionism, I should say, is about letting your anxiety about uh, being seen as vulnerable take over your ability to actually execute. So Mm. I think that we do need to hold ourselves to minimum quality standards, and we do need to make sure that what we're releasing is reflective of our brand. Uh, Anyone on my team probably knows that I am uh, kind of a copy editor first and foremost, so I'm not afraid to jump into uh, documents and make sure that grammar and typos and all of those are are, are buttoned up. Um, And... Frankly, that's I, I do think, you know, when it comes to grammatical errors or, uh, you know, kind of like major layout and design errors, typos, those are those are usually minimum standards. 
Um, but the other thing that I find is that can really start going down a slippery slope where that can start to lead into, oh, well, um, the UI in our videos must always reflect 100% of what the UI is in our released product. That could be perfectionism because that's something where if you are spending a bunch of time and effort making sure that your customers um, always see the exact same down to the tiniest little detail version of the UI that is uh, reflected in the current version of your product, well, that might not actually be something that a lot of your customers notice. So mm. in some ways, I also feel like you need to let your customers tell you, um, you know, where you where you are or aren't meeting their expectations. It's about finding a balance. Yeah, I'd agree with that too. And just just for me to chime in from my experiences, again, I've been like Adam at several different places, several different environments with a lot of kind of similar customers. They a customer is probably going to care lightly, but not about like I see a typo, they're going to let you know maybe. I I have seen very few emails or notes or anything about those kinds of things. We try to filter them out, but I think the main thing here, and Adam, I really like the quote that you you gave there. It's really about managing that anxiety because what I see internally, and one thing I try to to level set an expectation of internally, is that hey. I spelled this word wrong and it went out. I can fix it. It's not a big deal. But some people will be like, oh, no, we've got to be perfect. I think that's one thing you have to actively combat. And to your point, Adam, yes, we have a minimum bar of quality always and forever. But find out where that is and tune it. Because I think you will find that your customers are a lot more forgiving than maybe your own internal people are. And, and if you set that expectation... Between, between doing a final QA and a, and a proofread mm-hmm. of, of your content and doing you know multiple hours of, of revisions just to make sure that you've stayed ahead of all possible problems. Absolutely. And I know somebody made a, had a question here. Um, the name of the podcast is C-Lab, like, you know, underneath the C. C-E-Lab. <laughs> the Customer Education Laboratory, because that underscores, uh, I am a trained scientist. I used to be a chemist, and we just kind of like that motif where we're always questioning. We're coming up with the hypotheses. It doesn't mean we know all the answers, but we're going to work together to find them. Adam, you have any other notes we want to lead out on? Well... Uh, as we as we always like to say on the podcast, if uh, this is valuable to you, please check out the site at customer.education, subscribe to the podcast. And, uh, you know, we, we encourage this to be a way to find the others who are working in customer education. So we're very thankful to all of you for attending and for Thought Industries for uh, inviting us to speak at the conference. It's been, uh, been super fun so far. It's been amazing. It was a great conference. Yeah, reach out to us, connect with us. We're on LinkedIn. We're on the Twitters at Dave Darrington is mine. Adam, you're at Avramescu. If you can, Avramescu, yeah. You can say, you can spell it. Isn't that your creed? (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, as I always like to say, go out, educate, find the others. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.